and welcome to another episode of the Brain Tools Podcast for what is going to be a fantastic conversation with two amazing blokes who, let's be frank, are reading machines. Sam, who do we have today? Very excited to have Adam Jones and Adam Ashton A-squared, the brains behind the What You Will Learn podcast, where they dissect and reveal insights from the most useful books in the world, which has amassed over 4 million downloads, their podcast. Uh, They've also just released a new book, The Shit They Never Taught You. Absolutely love that title, by the way, Uh, which incorporates lessons from over 100 of these books. Um, We're really, really excited to get stuck into it. Adam and Adam. Welcome to Brain. So Talks. good to be with you. And your there's so many yeah. podcasts we've been on where they dodge the word uh, dodge the word shit. So it's it's uh, Shizen, <laughs> the SH. The, they just make up all sorts of stuff. So it's a breath of fresh yeah. air to be able to use the word. I feel like you can't be an Australian and yeah, say that's right. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, fellas, we uh, we often get asked um, about how Sam and I first met, being a we like to think of dynamic duo. Obviously, you guys are the, the preeminent dynamic duo. So we have to ask you, when did you boys first meet? And uh, can you walk us through the journey to starting the podcast and obviously now the book? Yeah, we, we kicked it off as uh, two mates who met at a pub working a casual job, um, both pouring beers. Uh, Jonesy was on his last shift at that pub and so he was always sneaking out for a few a few beers and a few ciggies with the locals and I thought this is an interesting place to come work because it was my very first shift Um, but Jonesy clearly worked it out and I was was very much a goody two-shoes early on. It wasn't until Jonesy came back, it was his, he went overseas for for six or nine months and he came back and his first shift back was my last shift because I'd been fired. So uh, that's sort of how, that was our our first two meetings and it it wasn't until, uh, it wasn't until maybe three, four, three, four years later at university when Again, in a pub, Jonesy was reading a book uh, and I was just admiring that he was, uh, he was into, into some of those books that most uni students wouldn't be reading. Um, we, we then had a very quick connection over discussing things like the four-hour work week, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, a bit of Gary Vaynerchuk, a bit of Dale Carnegie. Um, and we both finished uni around the same time, started work in the real world, went into our corporate jobs in the city, and we thought, let's make a, a, a breakfast club on a Friday morning, which was really our excuse to invite a few girls um, to come and have breakfast with us every Friday morning. Uh, the first <laughs> three or four weeks, it was it started going pretty strong. We had a, we had a good attendance of our, ourselves plus four or five other girls, but by week four or five, it was just Jonesy and I were the only ones left. Um, and that was that was basically where we figured, okay, well, I guess it's just us. We're going to have to work out something to, to do on these breakfast clubs to make it worthwhile. And that's when we started talking about books. Yeah, wow. So it all started as a ploy to get some girls to hang out with you after you guys realized there was a common interest in books. As as these things often that's do it. start. That's where, that's where it all started. From there, we, uh, we, we both loved listening to podcasts. We spoke about books. We thought... Why not just hit record and um, see what happens, start our own podcast? The original intention was nothing to do with getting listeners or sponsors or any of that sort of stuff. It was purely for trying to to remember books because we'd read a full book, get to the very end of it, and especially me compared to Ashto, I'd, I'd forget the whole lot, um, wouldn't remember a thing of what I read. So we thought, all right, if we record a podcast, if we do some preparation for it, do the editing at the time and then listen back to it. That's like three or four different layers of, of retention on top of just reading the book. So, yeah, that was the original goal. And from there, when we found out 
a few extra listeners were jumping on board, not just our parents and a few sympathy listeners. Uh, we started to do some iterations and improve things beyond there and what we're five or six years in into the journey now. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that's pretty It's pretty cool that you guys kind of figured out a little uh, brain tool in and of itself in the principle of cognitive rehearsal, that idea of going over content over and over again oh, nice. as part of your learning journey. So I'll, uh, I'll write that down for you. You can oh, man. read that later. Chuck that in my, the show notes. My brain, my brain tool number one, I've got written here on this piece of paper next to me, repeated exposure through different modes. And that was just the words I used, but yours was it's way two better. Words there. So You've let's got just, two words there. So let's just two, use your two, two words. words. Scrap mine, just use yours. <laughs> See, I was already reading your mind. And we'll, well, you know what? I would we'll have to give you a chance to explain that brain tool in more depth later. And then I'll give you the, the word term again. And we can pretend like you came up with it totally. <laughs> so, speaking of reading in particular, I love that it was actually started as a way for, for you two to kind of retain more of what we read. Because I know so many people read books and then forget about it. One issue that a lot of people is like have these days is this expectation to read you know so many books like everyone's on social media talking about reading 100 books massive flex but then that retention factor is is so small um safe to say you boys have read a lot you've read a lot of books and you've probably got it down to a bit of a science um speaking of this might be the perfect time to drop that brain tool in <laughs> can i ask you what like what's your reading process and, and how do you retain uh, more of that information from books and the key lessons now that you've refined it definitely the uh the the thing that's really worked for us is just is the podcast really has really forced us to retain a lot more because not in the past when you were when you're reading a book obviously you, you read the book like the eyes go back and forth across the lines and across the words and and you're supposedly taking it in uh, but for me not a whole lot stuck it wasn't until i started actively reading a lot more so you know taking notes making highlights uh, as i was going through the book so that definitely helped um, then you know typing out those notes definitely helped as well creating a mind map out of those notes um, editing those notes, going back and forth with Jonesy to work out, okay, what's the best structure um, for us to turn this book into a podcast episode? Obviously, us discussing, us talking about our ideas back and forth. Then, obviously, recording the episode. We're talking about it as well. We're teaching, you know, as we're doing it as if if somebody hadn't heard these ideas before, what's the best way for us to teach them? And then, of course, listening back to our recordings as well. So, what did you say? Cognitive rehearsal. That's what I think. That's what we're doing. Just by yeah, you know, rather yeah, yeah. You, you nailed it. You got the science. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> rather, rather than just reading the book once, you know, in that in that one week, in that one week, we're now probably reading that same or going over and over that information five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times potentially, um, depending on how many times we go back and forth over our notes. So really, it takes it to a whole nother level. And, uh, probably just add one extra element to it, or another brain tool from. Um, Charles Duhigg was the, the <laughs> cue craving reward. So whenever you're trying to install a new habit, because that, mm -hmm. that process, as Joe was saying, like we're at the, we're putting a lot of time into the whole process now, probably like 20 hours a week each, um, not just reading, but all the other stuff, which probably doubles the time. So uh, early on, what really helped me uh, get into the reading habit was just to do something I enjoyed every day, have a nice latte or have my morning coffee out, out at a cafe or if I felt if I felt like breakfast, eating out, I'd let myself uh, spend $20 and have breakfast, read my book. And uh, I'd, you know, in terms of the brand, you'd end up enjoying the process a lot more. 
but also another award which kind of kept us going back for more or me personally was just seeing people were actually listening it's like getting your social media likes and it might be the same with you guys on the podcast um <laughs> it does massage that little sense of self-importance that you get when you see you've got a bit <laughs> of an audience so um just seeing that would kind of send you back for more so i think having that somehow engineering the reward factor into the habit loop uh helps a lot as well yeah that makes a lot of sense especially based on all the neuroscience and and the psychology of what you guys are doing it's like you're using the generation effect which is like you're trying to create as many different things or building things from one book and the more you can do that the more you create links between things and it starts to become a bit of a recipe for retention and success as opposed to you know forgetting absolutely everything and when i was on the the site i was just having a little bit of a dibby dabble and looked at i love your ratings like it always makes me laugh when i see a rating where there's a massive discrepancy <laughs> but in the times that it does uh, align for you fellas i saw your number one book of all time is the 48 laws of human nature by robert green and you both gave it a huge 10 out of 10 I had to ask, um, why is it your number one book of all time and a lesson you both sort of implement in your life, so to speak? Um, Robert Greene was, for us, has just been, uh, all of his books have been killer. So we've done on the podcast, I think we've done four now. We've done the 48 Laws of Power. We've done the Laws of Human Nature. We've done Mastery. We've just done the 33 Strategies of War. Um, the Art of Seduction, I'm sure, will be, will be coming not too far away as well. That'll probably be the next one we tackle. Um, but just his... His books we found to be just like so so powerful uh, and so well written as well. He'll give us he'll give you some kind of uh, obscure story from history, something from from 350 years ago, or something from 2,000 years ago, or something from a completely different part of the world. Uh, and using this this story, he then extrapolates and extracts the lessons out of that that you can then apply to your own life. Whether that's uh, in war in a metaphorical sense, if you're going head to head with a with a colleague or a partner, or whether that's in power, if you want to move up in the in the world in in the workplace or in your status roles, you want to move up. Power is fantastic, and uh, yeah, human nature for us was both number one, and it was uh, it was a phenomenal book. It's eighteen different. Uh, elements or aspects of human nature and not all the best stuff as well in fact a lot of the darkest stuff as well things like uh the your ego things like envy things like people wearing masks um he also talks a lot about the cognitive biases he talks a lot about how to persuade people so it was just like a power packet of almost like the like the best books that we've ever read all packaged up into one basically well said our show and as you're reading it you'll go through a whole bunch of different personas and you think oh, that person's pretty stuffed up oh that's a that's a pretty weird person who's, you know, got a weird upbringing. And then we go through four or five of them and then he'll just get hit you personally, just bang on the head and you're like, shit, I never knew. Um, <laughs> I never knew that about myself. So like, I think there was, yeah, 18 or, or different less lessons. I forget exactly, but you know, I never probably ever thought us, I, I was a narcissist in a few different ways until, uh, to reading that. And then, you know, viewing yourself as a narcissist, you can transform that into empathy, but it's always step one, becoming aware of it, becoming conscious of it. And until you get to there, then you can't really do much about it. So that's one. Another one, which none of us want to admit at all is envy. Because if you admit you've got envy, you're admitting someone else is doing better than you in the world in some sort of way. And it's just the way it is, the way we navigate around the world with with mates, with cousins, with whoever, we're always noticing the status differences amongst people. And again, if you're not conscious of that within yourself, then 
it might get manifest in pretty dark and evil ways and you might notice that some other people some other people's manifestation of envy is coming in interesting ways to yourself so um again if you're aware of it you can get above envy and turn into emulation and go all right that person's better than me with higher status for these reasons um rather than unconsciously uh you know manipulating them or or doing some dark stuff you end up emulating them and the whole thing becomes a much more positive experience so uh laws of human nature it was about book 150 i wasn't expecting to be slapped across the face in such a powerful way after reading so many books so i think that's partly why it's gave 10 out of 10 in the number one book of all time because um yeah it's it was just knocked us knocked us out of the park really you're therapized by a book (laughs) By Mr. Robert That's Green, it. is what I'm hearing. Big, <laughs> um, big time. I, I love that you brought up that point. He uses a story to extrapolate lessons and then and and then show how they apply to you. Because what we do know about how the brain works is that story and narrative is basically hardwired into the way we think. We we think in this chronological sequence of cause and effect and emotional valence, and that's basically narrative. So as soon as you're using something like that, it makes those lessons stick. And also that point on envy, we are so hardwired um, to make comparative judgments from a social perspective for those around us because it's just part of the way we evolved to, to stay a certain status within a tribe. So yeah. acknowledging that's the, the, the yeah, first Yeah, it, it helps right? with all sorts of other stuff which ties into other ideas from books like a, you know, a financial slash uh, philosophy concept is hedonic adaptation. And it's very hard to get off the hedonic treadmill where you're just trying to keep up with the Joneses. And a lot of that might be based on like status um, anxiety slash envy. But, you know, again, if you notice those emotions, it's much easier to get off the hedonic treadmill and put the cash back in your pocket and realize, hang on, I don't need to buy that superb $50,000, $60,000 car. It's really no difference to a $15,000 car other than status differences it gives you. I can't believe you just said the word hedonic treadmill. I reckon Kieran's probably smiling. <laughs> I am smiling <laughs> so much, mate. I have the, I've already had a man crush. It's uh, developed further, Jonesy. So, <laughs> well, well, mate. I'm excited about that. <laughs> um, so, so in chapter 33 of, of, uh, of the new book, the skills framework Really liked and really liked that you made some fantastic points based on the, the first 20 hours by Josh Kaufman. Fantastic TED talk. If, if you haven't heard that one, go check it out. But I wanted to ask, in from what you've read and from what you've experienced over your journey the last five, six years or so, why do you guys think learning a, a new skill is so difficult? And when, what are some of the specific strategies for skill development that you've picked up from all these books? The, the podcast we did on that book, the podcast episode, I reckon there was a uh, we don't often like we often we like to say like the books are obviously like the books are fantastic go and read the book for yourself that one there was like i think it was like 10 principles of rapid skill acquisition and 10 principles of learning and then we sort of combine them all and turn them into five sort of meta steps so we were pretty happy with that one with how we uh sort of took that book and and made it our own i think the hardest part about learning skills and this is more of a just a direct rip from him we can't claim this one but just the idea of the frustration barrier the idea that mm-hmm. anytime you start something new, uh, you go from being completely unaware of all your uh, weaknesses, all your errors, all your flaws, and as soon as you try to do something new, you become painfully aware of all of those things. They come right back to get you. It's a, it becomes so frustrating where if you 
you're trying to learn to play tennis and you swing the racket and you can't even make contact with the ball or you're, you're trying to play violin and you, you want to sound like, uh, I was going to say Yo-Yo Ma, I think he's a cellist, so we'll scratch that one, but whoever a famous <laughs> violinist is, um, Joshua Bell, there's, there's one that came to mind. And uh, instead of sounding like that, you're just sounding like you're strangling a, a, a homeless <laughs> cat or something. So every, anytime that you start to first try to learn a new skill, you're going to become very painfully aware of how bad you are at it. And I think that's that first bit that really uh, that makes you want to put it down, it makes you want to put down the violin, it makes you want to put down the tennis racket. Um, and so that's what that book was all about, trying to break through that frustration barrier to get to a point where you can be okay and not embarrassing yourself. Yeah, and it's just 20. It's, and it's beyond that, like getting to the frustration barriers, just blocking out 20 hours, like just 20 hours in the book. It does give you like step-by-step how to go about that 20 hours. But um, the first three hours might be YouTube YouTube research, which a lot of the time you might think is just um, boring waste of time. But in the idea of uh, skill acquisition, it can be probably the highest leverage time you could be spending. But um, yeah, once you've got the 20 hours blocked out, having a time log, uh, we've both had a crack at, a pretty similar skill, but from different contexts. Ashley um, did drawing. I was blown away. He was drawing like Cartman little, and images like that. I did it from an engineering point of view. And after 20 hours, it's amazing how how quickly you get relatively competent at it. You're not going to blow the world away, but good enough to actually put a new skill into your skill stack. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense as you speak about with the frustration barrier because this concept we know as limbic friction when it's also a part of something called the amygdala hijack where your threat response just goes absolutely bonkers. And what that then does is says, hey, no, this is threatening to me. I don't want to do this. I shouldn't do this. And it's all that disconnect, as you said, between what you want to do, what you can actually do and what you think you can do. Um, And that becomes a a really interesting point on that. Um, And for all the people that have tried to learn golf over lockdown, I'm sure they've experienced that. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Definitely. 100%. I think there's also probably another little perspective there just to sneak in there from, from a neurological lens is there's this concept of zip's law or the conservation of energy slash conservation of least effort where basically the brain wants to put in or expend as little energy as possible as a survival mechanism and doing things that you're not good at that are really hard are incredibly effortful in the brain because mm. you're trying to form these new connections you're burning up energy in your body so that frustration is more than just agitation of the body it's your brain going no this is actually too hard and i'm lazy and survival <laughs> means let's not do this <laughs> I like that. Zip slaw. Uh, Zip slaw. Yeah. Check it out. Look at us go. Um, the other one that we looked at, by the way, lads, is we did a series called Brains at Work, and it was for basically professionals. It was a roadmap of you know how to boost your productivity, resilience, efficacy at work. And in chapters 43 and 44, um, you talk about efficiency and effectiveness, two buzzwords that people like to throw out, but obviously important nonetheless. What are uh, the strategies or the tools um, that you think have had the biggest impact on both your efficiency uh, and effectiveness? Mm. I, I- I might shoot first. There was three chapters in that lesson, but uh, I'd say number one is very related to Ziff's law um, for the the positive is um, choosing or eat that frog or choosing the most uncomfortable task you can possibly think of um, and starting with that every day because it's always going to be that uncomfortable task. You're going to be, as we were saying, choosing the path of least resistance. So if that's going to be a habit... um, you know, you're going to be focusing on the, the 80-20, the most 20% with the highest leverage. 
And if you just do that for the day, you've probably completed 80% of your productivity for the day in the first one or two hours because the most uncomfortable task is almost always the most important. Whether it's calling the angry client who's who's pissed off at your poor performance and you just say, hey, I stuffed up and you be honest. Uh, it's quite a personal story. That happened yesterday. <laughs> 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 you know what I mean. Very relevant. You know I mean. Always, always <laughs> the most uncomfortable, and it's it's probably the simplest but the hardest. So I like those sort of tools where it's a simple thing to do. You know what you need to do. You don't have to go out and get a manual and put all this effort in. It's simple as hell. It's just bloody hard to to get into that habit. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, it's it's just that that mental friction as we talked about before. That that principle of least effort that that blocks you, but putting that in as a mandatory thing that you have to do kind of liberates the rest of your day. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And if the, like it says in, in the book is like, if you choose the ugly, dirtiest frog and you swallow that as the first thing you do in the day, it makes all the other frogs, uh, frog being a metaphor in this case, hopefully everyone can pick that up. Um, toward the end <laughs> of the day, it's, it's everything simpler compared to that. Yeah, absolutely. What about you? Um, Ashes? I reckon uh, for me, there's the effective executive was a, a book that we just sort of just revisited. We did we read it like four years ago, um, and for for I don't know why, but for the first two years of the podcast, we used to do a song like a dirty rap <laughs> freestyle rap at the end of our podcast. Cult forty five esque. So oh, nice. that rap was the, probably the worst rap that we ever did in terms of just it's very not it's not twenty twenty one appropriate. So we we redid that episode to get rid of it. But it was great to revisit the effective executive. Um because it was like a it's a management book written fifty odd years ago by Peter Drucker, uh, and the, it's just like five sort of simple meta things that you can do, uh, like five principles or five practices to do as a in your career that w- will have massive leverage over your day. And I think that the biggest one is just to ask what needs to be done, and that's a very different question to what most people ask at the start of the day. Because most people would ask, "What do I want to do?" Or they might ask, what's going to be the easy thing to do? But very few people ask what needs to be done because the thing that needs to be done is the thing that nobody else wants to do as well. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And it's usually the thing you're trying to put off. Definitely. The the scariest thing or the biggest project or the client who you were dreading is about to absolutely unload on you on the phone. Speaking from experience, also, been there, been there. It's also, as as you were saying, though, like if it's uncomfortable, uh, taking it from another book here, which is MJ DeMarco, uh, the whole idea is difficulty is the opportunity. So if it's difficult and everyone else is avoiding it, that's where most of the opportunities lie. And if they're the things that you tackle, all the difficult stuff, a whole bunch of things are going to happen. You might build rare and valuable skills that nobody else has been able to to obtain um and with that you got you got scarcity and scarcity creates value as seth godin says um and you can trade that in that 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 scarcity and that value you've got to have some leverage over your career and take it where you want to go because uh pulling another book (laughs) cal newport career capital is a concept where with Mm -hmm. that career capital you can trade it in for first of all autonomy i mean if if everyone wants you in the workforce, then you can wake up and say, hey, I'm going surfing. I'm not going to not gonna work until 11 a.m. today. And you can do what you want because you've 
you got that scarce skill set or you can trade it in for purpose you can say all right i'm not going to work for this company based on values and then you choose for a company that's based on your own personal values and um, it's much more aligned if you're just a graduate doing easy tasks putting your finger up to a company because of their values they'll say yeah fine go off and find another company mate we don't really care and then the other company won't won't take you on so yeah all starting from choosing the difficulty as the opportunity is as a habit again it's going to build that career capital and eventually give you the reins over your career for you to take it in the direction wherever you want to wherever you want to take it i absolutely love that it's almost a career arbitrage opportunity is doing and choosing that difficult thing because you're going to be the person who executes and that is also going to build the capital along the way that allow you to distance yourself in whatever your way how many um, um how many brain possible? tools are we up to? We haven't been signposting them, but I feel like we've been dropping a whole bunch. We should have been calling <laughs> I, them out as we were going. I think we should have been calling them out. We almost need a tally on the side. <laughs> if anyone's been listening and has tallied them to this point, send them in. Send them in. I know it's going to be a little bit late, but um, let us know. Let us know how many brain tools we get to. Maybe we can have that as an Easter egg at the end. How many brain <laughs> tools did, did, did what Yeah, you get everyone else to do the work for we'll, us we'll pretty much. We'll book out um, and we'll send it to them for anyone who uh, – Guesses correctly, and one of us, or yep. add some yep. salt and pepper, and add, adds you know twenty percent inflation to our number of brain tools. That probably is a good one as well. <laughs> you realize someone's going to respond with an email saying there was thirty brain tools, and they're just going to hyper inflate. Makes us feel good, and uh, yeah, we're all for it. <laughs> hey, we're all about feeling good, especially yeah. in lockdowns. Um, Speaking back, getting back to the, the book, which I absolutely love, by the way, chapter 89, I read was inspired by The Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz, which we've actually covered one of our episodes earlier nice. on. Um, so it can kind of be said that the quality of the decisions largely determines like, the quality of your life, so to speak, both big and small. Question was, what did you learn about choice and were there any practical tips you can give us uh, to make better choices from what you read in these books? Hint, this could be a brain tool. <laughs> yeah, this I'm could be a brain tool. Number 30, 31. This could be another brain tool, I reckon. Know when to satisfy us, I reckon. That's, that could be a good mm-hmm. one. That Obviously, you've got, you've got maximizing and satisfying. When it comes to making a choice, whether that's a, a big choice like uh, what – job to take or what university course to study or who to marry or even if it's a small choice do you want uh, chicken in a biscuit or dixie drumstick in a biscuit when you're going down the the aisle at at, uh, at woolworths uh for any of those choices you've got sort of the option you can go the maximizer approach and the maximizer approach is to get the absolute best possible choice so getting all of the information getting all of the data collecting and evaluating all of the different options and making sure that you get the exact best possible choice for you in your situation. That's one way to do it. Or the other way to do it is just to realize, okay, what's like good enough? What's going to satisfy me? What's like the what's sort of like the bare minimum uh, that I need to do that I need to achieve? And if this gets done, I'm going to be happy, um, and that's satisfying. So there there are going to be some areas in your life that you should maximize. Um, that's going to be different for everyone, but obviously those bigger, higher leverage things, they probably do uh, demand that you do a lot more research and take a lot more time in choosing. But maybe when it's choosing uh, what bicky you want for a little evening snack, then you can probably satisfy us and say, whichever one tastes good enough and is on special, I'm just going to go for that one rather than trying to analyze and, and dissect all of the different possible variations as I walk down the supermarket aisle. Well said, Ash Joe. I've got nothing to add on that one. 
You didn't like that book. Nah, did you, yeah, it was one of those books that there was a discrepancy between how much we both liked it. I thought there was a lot of fat involved with that book, but but the kick. I reckon the further I get away from it, the better it gets as well. I reckon if I read it again, it'd be even better now. Potentially, I, I don't think I, I don't think it's just, it can be saved for myself, but. But the the kick is good. That that kick is good. So I just listen to Ashto's response rather than anyone going out and actually buying the book, I reckon. That's enough. They've saved themselves nineteen ninety nine plus. Yeah, that's it. That's right. <laughs> now, so lads, on that on that line, um, out of all the chapters in your book, which is the one that you know is the most important, but you find the most difficult to implement in your life and actually make it of something? Oh, good question. I I'll I'll go with I'll go with the most important but most difficult to implement um, would be Atomic Habits and uh, also the power of I uh, forget I forget what our chapter's called on the other one on habit but <laughs> habits in general they're obviously the most if you read enough books I think at some stage you realise that your habits are pretty much everything because what you install into your autopilot is how you operate 95% of the day, whether it's the habits we've already been talking about, like eating ugly frogs for your first task in the day. And if you do that, you're pretty much set. Like you get, the destination you're going to end up is almost guaranteed to be good if you get the habits installed well. But easier said than done. So I personally do a lot of little things, change, tweak my habits. Like uh, I got a story in the book where I used to find myself waking up and just scrolling through uh, Facebook or Instagram or something like that, all of a sudden you lose 30 minutes, all of a sudden you're not exercising in the morning and it just flows on for the rest of the day. So just by moving my phone to the other side of the room, meaning I have to get up and pick it up every morning, something very small but a new habit installation and from there I'm up at 5am every morning and doing my exercise and meditation and, and off you go sort of thing with a, with a great morning. Yeah, habits are great, easier said than done and over time... So many times I've just slowly allowed poor habits back into my life um, and then before you know it, it's fully eroded and just back to back to square one. So I feel like that's a tug of war that I have every six months. Uh, another issue with that is, is, yeah, putting on weight, tug of war of losing it and then putting it back on a bit. And So, yeah, that's always been a difficult thing and I think it's a war a lot of us are, are fighting. Mm. And just to just to give you maybe a bit of comfort on that habit perspective, because I totally agree with you. It's one thing that comes up all the time. Learning a new habit is actually completely rewiring your brain. Um, and I mean that in an absolute literal sense. You have to almost unlearn the old habit and the pathways associated in the brain. The synaptic connections have to atrophy while at the same time you've got to install this new pathway via repetition over time and over time and over time. And if you think you have these bad habits you've had for 20 years and you spend two months trying to install a new habit or well, two months versus 20 years. If you let that habit lapse, of course, those old pathways are just so ingrained and so strong in your brain that it's so easy to fall back into versus these new ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I once heard a good analogy for it and it's like, imagine you've got this snowy mountain and an old habit pathway down, down the mountain is like this really ingrained road that's just being carved out of the snow over time and new pathways are you trying to carve a new road into that snow but the snow keeps falling over the top of it so naturally it's going to be much easier to take that pathway that's already been established that's a great metaphor have you boys read the inner game of tennis 
No. No, I haven't. I reckon you'll either love it or hate it. And I reckon you boys might hate it. But I reckon it's worth a shot. It's only about 120 <laughs> pages. But he talks about... Um, he talks about the like it's tennis, like but and he's also got the inner game of golf, Kieran. That might be more up your alley, but it's um it's like obviously <laughs> like a, a metaphor for for life or for learning skills or or for changing habits. And he talks about like the grooves, like a you know they say like a, a golf swing or a tennis stroke. That the more times you do it, the more it digs a groove deeper and deeper and deeper. And obviously it becomes entrenched, as you said. It's like the wiring of the brain. This is how you do it. Your body knows. Your mind knows. Your muscles know. Um, his solution, he reckons it's pretty easy though. He reckons it's pretty easy to make a, a new groove and that you're only stuck in the bottom of a groove trying to dig out of a trench if you put yourself in there. So all right, give it give it give it a read. You might uh you'll either love it or you'll just hate it and say, No, this is just this is just horse shit. Well now I'm very curious. So much so that I'm probably gonna go buy it on Kindle <laughs> after this. <laughs> See if it's a ten out of ten or a one yeah. out of ten. <laughs> I reckon there's no middle ground, it's one or the other. <laughs> so so what about you? Um what was what was your you know, one thing that you find mm. most difficult to implement? I reckon uh I think the chapter's called Into the Arena. Um, talking yeah. about Brene's, Brene Brown's book, mm. um, Daring Greatly, and based on sort of mm. like the, the speech, citizenship in a republic, citizen, yeah, whatever it's called, Theodore Roosevelt. Anyway, the man in the arena speech, um, just saying that obviously like life's, life's probably better when, when you're in the arena rather than on the sidelines. And like the people who are in the arena who are having a crack, who are getting a bit bloody, a bit sweaty, a bit dirty, um, compared to the people who are just sitting on the sidelines who are just watching on and just hurling abuse and criticism. You'd rather be in the arena. But at the same time, it's bloody hard to get into the arena. Uh, you know, to to be the one who sort of steps up to get out of your, your comfy seat on the sidelines and to to make that first step across the threshold to to get into the, the battlefield or onto the onto the playing ground and, and start playing um, in the game yourself. So I reckon that's like it's an important one, like because everything, I guess, everything big is achieved there. Whether you're creating a business or or killing it in your career, or or um, for us, you know, making podcasts and writing books as well. Like, is there are times that we have stepped into the arena, but it's a it's an ongoing decision. I reckon it's 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 pretty easy to step back onto the sidelines and and in other areas of your life sit in the sidelines, but it it, it really takes you stepping into the arena to to make something of yourself. Mm, and scary as shit to take us yeah. <laughs> <Big> time <laughs> to step up the player but I mean it, it even comes back down back to, to that notion of envy and being envious and you'd rather be the person who other people are envious because mm. you took a shot than the person who regrets not doing anything definitely um, someone's watched The Last Dance by, with Michael <laughs> Jordan <laughs> <laughs> give Luke Lee long lease and air time <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> a little bit pissed off about that one, just quietly. <laughs> so, last question, oh, second last question before we totally let you off the hook, because I know you did prepare some brain tools for today, and I don't know how many we've got through. So, if anyone's counting, remember that offer on the line. But last question is, uh, if you could leave our audience with one brain tool, your favorite brain tool that you kind of use in your everyday lives, what would it be? I'll go with one that we haven't covered yet. Uh, it might be a bit left of field for a lot of people. Uh, listening but I used to be a huge grot with a lot of just leaving clothes everywhere everything was quite dirty until I came across one book was called life-changing magic of tidying up it's a bit of a mainstream popular book but it's super powerful like a lot of things we don't learn a lot of super critical stuff that's super relevant 
when we grow up and through school. It was only until this book I learned how to tidy and it's, it's very easy. Um, it's very easy and it just begins by discarding all the things that you don't like or that doesn't give you joy and then designating a place for every single thing in your house. So it doesn't matter if you've got mates over for a few drinks and you wake up and your house is a bomb. It takes literally 20 minutes to get to your house to 100% perfection. And every day that's what you can get your house to is 100% perfection. It has a huge impact on your brain when you're doing your work, particularly if you're working from home. Um, so I'd say life-changing magic of tidying up, learning how to tidy, and then implementing that. Once you've got the habit in, it's a very simple thing to do, but over time it's got very high leverage over your, just your general well-being and your, your personal pride in, in your house and things like that. You need like the, the two or three word version of that. What's the what's the um you know like cognitive rehearsal? What's like the uh the boiled down version of that, Jonesy? Mm, mental clutter. Mental clutter. Ooh. Mental decluttering. Mental decluttering. Yeah. 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 I like the it. Mental decluttering. <laughs> there you go. We'll claim it. We we took that from Maria Kondo. Yeah. <laughs> can you guys? I'll, can I'll you be listening to your podcast next that. week, and I'll hear you just bring that up. <laughs> so I just discovered mental decluttering all on my own. Trademark Jonesy and Ashto. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. Mine's probably um, the most the most main mainstream of a lot, but I feel like it's it's a vital one. I'm sure you guys have probably talked about it, and I'm sure a lot of people have probably heard about it almost too much so that it probably becomes a, a bit too cliche but i think adopting the growth mindset is like the just the absolute i think core of any sort of uh learning growth personal development achievement success i think it all sort of can be boiled down to adopting the the growth mindset obviously knowing that the fixed mindset is thinking that hey this is the this is the fixed traits this is what i was born with these are the skills i've got these are the abilities i've got uh either i was born really good at maths or i was born with a, a brain that that couldn't even calculate two plus two or you just think I was just born with these natural gifts of, of artistry or you just think, no, nah, I can't draw to save my life. Uh, that's the fixed mindset. That's what you don't want. You want to adopt the growth mindset that anything you do can be learnt, can be developed, can be improved upon through practice and through applying a bit of effort and a bit of training, then you can actually get better and improve. Yeah, both of both of those make so much sense. And I think it ties beautifully with what we've spoken about on the potty, which is um, something called self-directed neuroplasticity, which is just basically a fancy way for do stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> It's like a very fancy way like for it. saying do stuff and focus on the quality and the quantity of that. And then the feedback loop that it might have on your mindset and your belief then obviously then dictates your actions and your results moving forward like um, Pygmalion theory. So of all... 9,500 brain tools we've discussed in this, uh, in this episode. <laughs> I, uh, I dare say all of them have been really practical and geared towards um, making sure that you're doing the right stuff and doing more of it, which, uh, which makes a lot of sense to me. You guys have got a very fancy way of saying what our, our sort of new tagline has become: read books and do shit. So that was uh, we'll go with self-directed <laughs> well, our, our, neuroplasticity. Our fancy so. <laughs> yeah, it's like read neuroscience and pretend like we know what it's all about. <laughs> Amy Cuddy, fake it till you make it with a power pose, and we're done. <laughs> Totally fooling me. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of PhD in neuroscience. There's some impressive words popping up, so I like it. I've got Wikipedia open right here. You just can't say. That. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Before we wrap up, that just one last thing. That growth mindset is so important because I know Dan Kahneman actually mentions this, and you, you've interviewed him. But what you see is all there is, and there's this concept mm. that there's a part of our brain called the reticulata reticular activating system and it basically confirms what we already believe by filtering our perceptions 
so that we only take in inputs and information that confirms those beliefs. So as soon as you have a limiting belief, guess what? All the information mm. around you is filtered so that that belief is confirmed. Yeah, it's a very powerful concept, the reticular, reticular activation system. I feel like it's the practical version, boiled down version of like what law of attraction sort of stuff is because there is, that's mm. like the element of truth is the reticular activation system, like what you actually gear your brain up for. You're going to filter it in ways and you might notice opportunities that you wouldn't have otherwise if it, if your brain's looking for it. But, um, but yeah, that's where it stops. A few people kind of take it from that point and, and make it as if like some things are just a popping up in your life sort of thing. But yeah, the reticular activation system's a, a ripper. That's it. <laughs> I love how you've uh, also, Jonesy, you mentioned that three times, just really getting that down, pal. I really appreciate that one as well. <laughs> Does that count as one brain tool or three? Ah, uh, it's three. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to counting these and editing them up, boys. Amazing stuff. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on the Brain Tools podcast. I know I'm speaking for, for Sam and myself, but um, I'm sure the listeners got so much out of that and it's been fantastic to get you on board and uh, the book as well. Just got to ask because I'm sure there are people chomping at the bit to go follow you and understand what you're doing. Where can people go to find out more about you uh, and your work in the book? Yeah, the shit they never taught you.com is the home of the book or what you will learn.com is the home of the podcast. Uh, find us wherever uh, podcasts are found, I guess, what you will learn. Yeah, epic. And go give it a listen to. They've, they've had some absolutely cracking episodes, uh, uncovered some, some brilliant books. And it's just a bit of fun too, to be honest, having listened to a fair bit of your show. I always, always have a bit of a giggle at some stage. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't listened to The Housemate Busting in the Door yet, <laughs> but I'm going to go look for that episode directly after this. <laughs> um, Adam and Adam, Jonesy and Ashto, thank you so much for coming on uh, the show. Really appreciate you. And that's all uh, from from us this week at Brain Tools. Thanks so much, lads. It was great to chat. Thanks, boys. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, guys.